Let's pray as we stand a moment. Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you indeed for the gift of your Holy Spirit. I just pray this morning as we wrestle with things that, that may in some ways seem somewhat unfamiliar, that you would be filling those gaps in what we know through the person and through the work and power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, let's be seated. So in this series, we, we've seen that the church in Thessalonica had this faith in God, great faith, and they knew, even though they were sinners and they'd fallen short of the glory of God, they knew the greater message of grace, so they had faith. And we've seen that their faith was starting to be displayed in the way that they treated one another, because once you have seen God's love for you, you cannot help but start to manifest that in the way that you love one another. So they had faith in God, and they had love for one another, but still something was missing in the church, and we've seen that was hope. But I think I need to correct myself. Rather than missing, I think their hope was misplaced. Their expectations, their desires, their fears, all of their emotional energy, their hope, was invested in this world, in the things of this world. And they thought that this world, the one that we are in now, was it. This was as good as it gets, and that eternity was, was just this. And so, as the world started to let them down, this became a double crisis for that church. As the world let them down, it became a crisis of hope that was about to manifest as a crisis of faith. So Paul says, and let's turn to it, this is really thick stuff today. Chapter 4, verse 13, you want to see it. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. There was a gap in what they knew. Simply, there was a, there was a gap. And if you could boil down that gap in their knowledge to just one thing or one idea or one subject, it would be all about death. They misunderstood death. They were uninformed. Verse 13 says about those who are asleep. That's just a euphemism for death. And so because they misunderstood death, they were disturbed when people died. And they were disturbed when, when things went wrong in this world. Now think about it. It makes a lot of sense because there was a gap in what they knew. So they'd filled that gap with ideas of their own. This is what we will always do if we don't open Scripture. They knew some of the basics. They did not know it all. So they knew that Jesus had died, and they knew that he'd risen, and they knew that he had ascended, and they knew that he would return, and they knew that in dying and rising, he had defeated death. He had conquered the grave, drawn the sting of death. He, they knew that he had given to them through his death and resurrection, eternal life. But there was a gap in what they knew, and they filled the gap with ideas of their own. And logically they thought, therefore, we cannot die. Can't happen to us because we're in Christ and we're alive, and he's defeated death. At the very least, we're not going to suffer. Nothing is going to go wrong because Jesus has won. And it makes sense. It is a great thesis, isn't it? Until someone dies. And then what are you going to do? Well, you know, Albert, maybe he was a bit dodgy. 
always had my eye on him. There's no surprises there. I'm okay. I'm a good guy. It can't happen to me. That would be what you do to keep your theory alive. It's only a matter of time, isn't it, before the body count gets big enough for you to start to question whether the thing you made up was true after all. And if your hope is in this world, it is only a matter of time before you lose it. And from there, you lose your faith. That's where they were. They were on the very edge, I think, of just chucking it all because it didn't make sense to them, simply because of something they misunderstood and nothing more than that. And so, super fast, Paul explains some of the things they did not know. It's, uh, it's much more exciting, but it's basically a washing machine manual. He's about to write here. Just, just, it's just, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. I mean, it's, this is about eternal life, so it's much more than that, and it's the word of God, and it can save you. So it's much more than what a washing machine can do. But he is going to tell you, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. So I do commend at home and uh, in this room that we have scripture open in front of us. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we know this, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, meaning died. Jesus died. You will die. It is perfectly normal to die. But if you are in him, then like him, you will also rise. This weekend at our baptism, in a couple of hours, as we baptize Andrew Woolpe, uh, we're going to hear and we're going to see a reminder of this, a, a, a testimony about death and resurrection. He will die, probably, unless Jesus returns, but he will rise. So Paul explains, he says, look, Get over it. Most people die. That is perfectly normal. Most people will die long before Jesus returns. But of course, someone will be alive when he does. He is going to come again. And, and some members of the church will actually be alive on this earth. Maybe us, maybe the generation after us, maybe in 2,000 years. We do not know, but someone will be alive. And he says about them... We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have died. So bear with me as Paul writes a step-by-step -step explanation of how this works. Here's the basic mechanics of death and resurrection and return. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. So just as he ascended, he will descend. With the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God. So real audible signs that you cannot miss. Every now and then some crackpot will say, you know, Jesus has returned or, or I am Jesus, you know, follow me. It, no. It, was there a trumpet? Was there an archangel? No. Were there any of the signs? Evidently not. You cannot miss them. And then he says this, the dead in Christ will rise first. Dead Christians will come up out of the grave, out of the sea, wherever they might be. Just as Jesus did, they will rise. So far, so good, right? Not news. But uh, jump back, shall we, to verse 14 a moment. Dead Christians, they're buried, so they're going to rise. But he also says, in, uh, it says here in verse 14 that he will bring them with him. Bring the dead Christians with him. And you can almost hear the cogs whirring in their brains at this moment, just as I can see it on our faces in this room. Hang on a minute. If Christ died and Christ rose, 
and dead people are now with Christ, and he's going to bring them with him, how can they also be, at the same time, buried in the ground and come up out of it? They can't be in two places at once. What is going on? These are not stupid people. That is not a stupid question. That is a very logical question to ask with the information we have so far. How can dead people be, at the same time, in heaven with Jesus and also in the grave here on earth? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that when we die, we are away from the body and at home with the Lord. So in other words, our bodies remain here, but some spiritual aspect of our conscious selves go to be present with the Lord alive at the same time. And Jesus himself, he tells the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, describes the spirits of men as worshipping God. And Revelation depicts where they are, the souls of, of the believers gathered under the altar and that image of, of, uh, of heaven in Revelation. And so together what these verses do is they show us that when people die, their bodies do indeed remain here on earth, but some spiritual aspect of themselves also goes to be with the Lord alive. Now that should not be news for us or a very surprising thing to say. Dead Christians go to heaven and they live a nice spiritual afterlife, right? Are we tracking with that? That's, that's true. That's, that's a Christian doctrine. Uh, but of critical importance, Paul says, that is not the end. That's not the end. There is more. And uh, as I talk to people, I think one of the problems is for us in the West, a bit like the Thessalonian church that we're reading about here, there are gaps in our knowledge, little gaps in what we know. And we suffer, I think, especially in the modern West from what we've been calling the Disneyfication of our faith. We get a lot of our doctrine from Plato via Hollywood rather than Scripture. And we're bombarded through advertising, through movies, through cartoons, through books, with these images or stories of the afterlife that are only telling us part of the story. The prevailing ideas are not fundamentally scriptural. So many Christians spend their whole Christian lives thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to go up to heaven, end of. Not end of. That is not all there is. And uh, I can remember I'd been a Christian for about five years when I learned about this. And uh, I went to see my vicar and, uh, you know, my pastor. And I said, Vicar, I've been reading the Bible. And uh, it seems to me uh, as though it's saying that there's more than just heaven. And he said, well, yeah, duh, of course. I said, well, no one told me this. And as I talked to my friends, I discovered no one had told them either. Heaven is temporary. Amen. So the bishop, the scholar, Tom Wright, he refers to heaven as the life after death. And it is real that Tom Wright says there is more than life after death. Revelation 21 promises for us a new heaven and a new earth. And Bishop Wright calls the return of Jesus, which we're looking at here, not the life after death, but the life after life after death. So, Paul continues, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, with the resurrected dead, in Christ, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in 
the heir. Christ died, Christ was buried. Christ rose, Christ ascended. When you die, the spirits go up, the body goes down. When he returns, he brings the spirits with him, the bodies come up. When they've been stuck back together in the sky, then believers who are alive join them as well. That's the washing machine manual of what takes place. And from there, that is not the end, there we are renewed. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Isn't that wonderful? At the last trumpet, there's that trumpet that we heard about. For the trumpet will sound, you can't miss it, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. God is a God of all things, not just spiritual things, not just wafting around in the sky in some sort of ethereal way. God is the God of, of the physical and the spiritual. That's why he incarnated. It's why he died. It's why he resurrected a body and took that body into heaven with him in Christ Jesus and seated a human man on the throne of God and why he will come again. He's the God of all things, not just ideas. Uh, and so at his return, what he does is he makes us ready for the life after the life after death, which will be both spiritual and physical, perfected, and renewed in the air. Why the air? Why is he doing it in the sky? Well, because as we are being renewed, as our resurrection bodies are being perfected for eternity and made imperishable, so too is the world. The world is being renewed as well. Frequently, in Scripture, the clouds are telling us something about the presence of God. They're either depicting the presence of God or, or actually, really, they are the presence of God. It's telling us that heaven is coming down, the very presence of God is coming down as heaven and earth are fused and become one. Just as our resurrection bodies and our spirits are made imperishable, so too is this world that is reunited or joined with eternity. And then we see that all of those things that we put our hopes in on this earth are burned away. Those were temporary. And something eternal is provided for us way beyond anything we hoped in before at all. What are you hoping for right now? Because Jesus has more. And then from there, verse 17 says, we will always be with the Lord. It will never end. Everlasting, incorruptible, physical and spiritual, perfected, life after, life after death. That is the hope. That is what Christians believe. Therefore, he says, verse 18, in light of that, encourage one another with these words. Parakaleo. Come alongside and call it out. Um, call near or invite. That is the good news. Share it. Well, uh, for a series called What the Gospel Does, I've just taken up a lot of this morning telling you what the gospel is. Uh, but there's only a very, very small application in our passage this morning. It's all the way back in verse 13. And uh, very briefly, I just want to get into the so what section. Because if we don't have a so what section, then it's not really a sermon. So let's go to verse 13. And what I want to do is I want to talk about Christian grief. Christian grief. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are dead, that you may not grieve 
as others do who have no hope. So uh, I've taken about 100 funerals as a minister. Many of those were in England. It is a feature of Church of England life that if you're ordained in the C of E, you have to do the funeral of anyone that lives near to the church, regardless of what they believe. So uh, it means that uh, I have done many, many funerals for non-believers and many funerals for believers who were completely uninformed about death, who had taken their doctrine from Disney. And at these funerals, and I've got lots of them under my belt, they tended to go in one of two ways. The first way that they often went was grief without hope. It is just a crushing thing to trust in the things of this world. And then, in the end, have only loss. It is a crushing and depressing thing to lose everything. And I, I buried one man, and I asked his wife, can you tell me some things about him? It's a question that I asked all the time because I didn't know these people. And what I was looking for was, was something that was in some faint way reminiscent of, of the character of God. So that we could find some hope. Maybe they knew each other. There's a little sign or flash here of the eternal in the way this person lived. And uh, ideally, what I was looking for with that question was, was hope. Where is your hope and where was his? So I said, tell me something about this guy. And she said, well, he loved his car. Now, I'm a car guy. You know this. I was like, awesome. This is going to be really good. Um, I'm thinking maybe, you know, he really praised God for that car. That would be great. Or maybe, you know, he used that car to do some good and to help people. Uh, you know, it's not the core message of an ideal funeral, but you're going to work with what you've got. And so, you know, I said, well, tell me more. She, she, she went on. She made it much worse. She said, these are quotes, he lived for that car. And before my jaw could hit the ground, she said, that car was his life. Car was his life. She told me as he got sick and he could no longer drive this car that he loved, that he would go and sit on it in the driveway just feel the leather of the steering wheel. Just turn up the stereo and listen to how clear it was and just smell the, the sort of new car smell. And he would just sit in it for hours just with his senses taking in this material thing just to extend his experience of his hope by one more minute. That's what he did. And she said, it kills me to think he will never drive that car again. The funeral, they placed a model of the car on top of the casket, a little matchbox toy. The world had not run out of toys. This man had run out of world. And the family was grieving without hope. That is the essence of grief without hope. Uh, that's not the most common response. I'd say that was one out of 10. 90% of these conversations, far more common, I would say, uh, is hope without grief. That is far more common, hope without grief. And often what would happen in these conversations is that people at times like this would, would, would give me some false hope. 
They would show me the thing they were trusting in that was giving them comfort in that moment as they denied their death and pushed down the grief. They would tell me, look, it's going to be okay, right, pastor? He was baptized as a baby. So what? Who cares? Well, she was a good person. So what? Let's not get into the fact that she wasn't. So what? The most popular funeral song. Do you know what the most popular funeral song in the UK was as I took those funerals? Have a guess. Make it as bad as you can. People last night at the Saturday were guessing hymns. They were way off. Frank Sinatra? Yes. yes. The penny has dropped. I did it my way. I did it my way. Oh, is that, how is that working out for you, mate? I did it my way. What are you going to sing next? Let's have three songs. Let's do Ring of Fire. You know. Little boxes. What you know, I mean, like this is ridiculous. Ridiculous. The most popular poem made far, far worse by the algorithms at Google that just recycle popular things and amplify them for us was called Death is Nothing at All. It's a misquote from a sermon ripped out of context and used to give people a false hope. Push down the grief. Death is nothing at all. Death doesn't matter. Death is not real. Look, it's going to be okay. If death is nothing at all, then the resurrection will not happen. I saw a rainbow this morning. That was granddad. Uh, he's a tree now, a flower. Uh, a star just subsumed into nature. That is what people say when they don't have this book. And deep down, we know, of course, this to be untrue, right? Granddaddy is not a star now. Astronomers would have noticed if every single day the exact number of new stars that appeared in the sky correlated perfectly to the global rate of death. Someone would have put them together by now already. Who wants to be a star anyway? Who wants to be a nuclear explosion on their own in the yawning blankness of space? That's not hope. I went to an atheist funeral where the secular humanist officiant of the ceremony said, quote, I am sure he will be okay, and so will all of you. Based on what? That's my line. <laughs> Even the materialists are hardwired for hope, but what they provide is false hope. The reason why we tell ourselves these things, why we self-soothe with false hope, is because the grief is real. The grief is serious. But our message, the one that you must parakaleo, is that hope is realer. So Paul says, grieve. Do grieve. If you have lost some things in this life, Something important to you, grieve that loss. If you've lost your health, grieve that loss. If you've lost your freedom, if you fail at something, grieve. And if someone you love dearly has died, grieve. But here's what the gospel does. It empowers you to grieve with hope. Let's pray. Lord God, I lament that we could not get even into how you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, this Pentecost, long to join the dots of this kind of a sermon. So I just pray, God, that in the deficiencies of this 
talk, you fill in those gaps for us. But Lord God, if any of us are indeed suffering with grief, I pray that we would not push down or deny that grief. Instead, we would we'd bring that grief to you. And Lord God, in, in our grief, I pray that you would comfort us with true hope, with real hope, that what awaits for us is imperishable, perfect, physical, spiritual, and everlasting in your presence, heaven and earth, real. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the full gospel and what it does. Amen.